Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, professor of political science and host of this podcast. Donald Trump's defeat in last November's election spawned an eruption of press analysis about the impact of the defeat on the Republican Party. Pundits have opined endlessly on questions like, what will be the long-term impact of the Trump presidency on the party? Has Trump completely taken over the Republican Party? Or will his influence fade with time? Can the Republican Party bring back the moderate voters who fled because of Trump? Will never Trumpers reconcile with the party or desert to the Democrats? How will the party cope with conflicts between the business and the populist wings of the parties? While Beyond Your Newsfeed thinks these are good and interesting questions, because we go beyond the dominant press narrative, we are going to look at a different question than the one that seems to preoccupy the mainstream press. What has been and will be the impact of the Trump presidency on the Democratic Party? Although not much attention has been paid to this question than those about the Republican Party, it deserves a careful look. The Trump presidency was both a consequence of and a catalyst for long-term shifts in the coalitions of both political parties. Trump's impact has been and will be felt within the Democratic Party as much as the Republican. To examine how the Democratic Party has changed in the era of Trump and before, I have invited back to Beyond Your Newsfeed two acute observers of American politics, professors, professors Matt Guardino and Adam Myers of the Providence College Political Science Department. Matt and Adam, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Happy to be here as always. Me as well. And I should mention to our listeners that Adam is joining us via Zoom from Israel, from Jerusalem, uh, where he is on sabbatical at the Hebrew University. Uh, So he says the weather is fine in Jerusalem. So we're glad to know that uh, Adam is getting that uh, interesting experience and, and the like. What a wonderful sabbatical. Okay, uh, in order to structure our conversation, we thought we would uh, uh, look, uh, organize it around a couple of articles on the Democratic Party that were published in the most recent issue of Jacobin Magazine. One of the, essay, one of the essays is by Matt Karp, The Politics of a Second Gilded Age, and the second by Dustin Gustella, Everyone Hates the Democrats. I will provide links to both of these articles uh, on the episode notes. Both articles fault the Democrats for failing to win over working class voters with potentially dire consequences for the future of the party. Let me just give very brief summaries of both arguments uh, before we dig deep into uh, what these two authors have to say uh, and get the uh, views of my two guests. Uh, Carp, in the politics of a second Gilded Age, sees the peril in the politics of a new Gilded Age similar, similar to that of the late 19th century in America, with partisan identity politics submerging class conflict and ignoring the needs of the working class. For Carp, shifts in the demographic, demographic base of the Democratic Party's electorate is the principal problem. As its support among non-college age workers has been shrinking, non-college educated workers, excuse me, has been shrinking even in the Latino and African-American communities in last November's election. And it's increasing reliance on highly educated, more affluent suburban voters. This class dealignment will never allow the Democrats to obtain more than narrow electoral victories, given the geographic concentration of educated affluent voters in blue states and metropolitan areas. More importantly, it will never allow the Democrats to support progressive economic policies on taxes, jobs, and labor rights that attract working class support. Guastella makes a a similar argument with some different emphases. He emphasizes the flaws in Democratic Party messaging from both the progressive and moderate wings of the party. While progressives support many economic policies with working class appeal, 
they drown out these appeals with too much emphasis on woke cultural issues like defund the police that alienate many working class voters. Moderates, on the other hand, are too eager to label policies with working class appeal like Medicare for all as socialism and fall back on failed neoliberal formulas like technological modernization and free trade. The divide here for CARP is between policies that appeal to workers like healthcare, social security, Medicare and jobs, and those that appeal to affluent professionals like the environment, climate change, education and racial equality. While all these policies should be part of a progressive agenda, Democratic Party leaders, including President Biden, give more emphasis to the concerns of the professionals than to those of the workers. Okay, that's a brief summary of what these two authors say. Now let's turn to Matt and Adam and start to dig deep into their arguments. To begin, Matt and Adam, uh, what do you think about the general uh, thrust of both articles uh, about uh, how the Democratic Party is uh, responsive too much to affluent suburban professionals, the shift in democratic base, and the decline in their appeal to non-college educated uh, working class voters. Um, who wants to take the first crack at that? So I'll jump in here first and just say that I found the, the thrust of uh, the, the basic diagnosis of both articles pretty persuasive. I do think, however, that in both cases, in different ways, they kind of overstate and in some ways overcomplicate the problem. And I, and I think it's not an, an easy sort of solution, but I do think that, you know, there's a bit of hyperbole and some things that are being left out that, um, you know, I, in, in general, I would, I would suggest that there's more hope for a working class appeal coming from, you know, uh, from the sort of left flank of the Democratic Party and the increasing resonance of that appeal, and 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 lots of suggestion that uh, that there is some movement on that front, even in pushing somebody like President Biden to the left of where he would normally be. So I think there's a bit of overstatement, and and I I, I think that uh, that they're almost kind of suggesting that the sky is falling a little bit uh, for the left, and especially a class-based appeal on the left when I don't see the evidence of that. Okay, well, we'll dig more deeply into your hope, Matt, uh, in a minute. But first, let's hear Adam's overall take. So I am less hopeful, I suppose, than Matt is concerning the prospects for the Democrats becoming a genuine, genuinely working class party. I think there's a lot of obstacles to that. And, and I hope we get a chance to uh, dig into what those obstacles are. I would say that empirically speaking, I think both authors are onto something. And I think the clearest indication of this is if you look at the national election studies, which is kind of the gold standard of uh, election polling among political scientists. Um, if you look at those studies over time, there's been a profound shift over the past 20 years and particularly over the past two election cycles, the past two presidential election cycles. Um, between 1948, which is when the National Election Studies initiated, and 2016, there was always a negative correlation uh, between income levels and likelihood of voting Democratic among white voters. In other words, as income levels go up, likelihood of voting Democratic goes down. Because the Democrats were always, across races, uh, the party of low-income working-class voters. Uh, but in 2016 and 2020, we saw something unprecedented. That relationship flipped. Um, in 2016 and in 2020, uh, income levels and likelihood of voting Democratic were positively correlated. Uh, and so there is definitely an inversion of the class divide that has occurred among white people. Now, obviously, if you add in racial minorities, the traditional relationship between income and voting still exists because most African-Americans and Latinos are lower income than white people and most of them vote Democratic still. But as I think you alluded to, Bill, um, in 2020, we began to, saw, to see the emergence of a kind of inverted class divide among African-Americans and Hispanics too. So there's definitely something going on which should concern Democrats and more specifically left-wing Democrats. 
Yeah, actually, let's pick up on that. Uh, since you brought up, one thing I noticed in both these articles is their baseline for the shift seems to be the 2008 election, where Obama uh, actually captured a large proportion of these very voters that uh, both articles say are, are, are a shrinking part of the Democratic base. So uh, are we dealing here with a very short-term phenomena? Um, is this really connected perhaps to Trump in a way that maybe will not uh, be uh, solidified? Um, what can we make of that? I, I guess, especially Adam, you've looked at the data going back to 1948. Was there any hints of this prior to 2008 of the sort of shrinking of the particularly white working class base? Yeah, there absolutely were hints of this before 2008. I'd say you could you can find evidence of these patterns beginning uh, back in the 90s and especially in the early 2000s. You might remember, Bill, there was a really prominent book that came out around 2002 called The Emerging Democratic Majority uh, by John Judas and Rui Teixeira. And what those two scholars basically argued was the Democrats could create a durable majority coalition by combining, uh, by, by combining racial minorities and well-educated professional types. In other words, leaving out white working class voters, right? And in 2008, when Obama was elected, every, the, the dominant interpretation of that election at the time was Judith and Tashe were right. You know, their prescription for a long-term democratic majority came into fruition. But later on, we found out that it wasn't quite so simple. So I think that you can see elements of these, of these trends going back a long time. Certainly, they were amplified in 2008 in the Obama victory, and they were much more amplified in 2016 um, when Trump was elected. So I would, I would agree with that in general, that it's been a long-term phenomenon. And, and frankly, I, I tend to agree with both authors on the, on the basic idea that, you know, a big part of that has been a failure uh, on the part of the Democratic Party establishment to make connections, right, with the, with the working class in the way that was possible or they were able to in the past, as well as just changes in the Republican strategy, which we can talk about. Um, one of the things I had a problem with in, 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 in the analysis was that, you know, that, you know, 2008 was clearly a very, very unusual election in the sense that we were in the middle of a financial crash when the economy began to tank. And we know as political scientists that an election held in a year like that is quite different, right? Um, and clearly, you know, um, the party in power is going to receive a lot of the blame for that. And that, you know, just because there was more working class and white working class support for Obama than would occur later, doesn't mean that we can make a clean comparison between that year and say 2016 or even 2012 or 2020. Uh, I think that there's been a long-term shift and there was a bit of an interruption in voting patterns in that election in particular that had a little bit to do with Obama's class rhetoric and populist rhetoric, but a lot more to do with the conditions uh, of the country at the time. Yeah, good, because I, I was concerned about that, this emphasis in that election, which clearly was, was unusual. Uh, but it seems that the a long-term trend is there, that there has been a, a alienation of a lot of non-college educated, particularly white voters, and now perhaps even some Latino and African-American voters uh, with the Democratic Party. Can we talk about that a bit? What is the source of this uh, alienation, this disaffection on the part of these voters? Um, and maybe we should if you'd like, I think maybe we should divide the conversation into, into pre-2008 and, and post-2008. Um, so what do you think about that? Prior to 2008, why would there have been, starting the 1990s, kind of a shift of these voters away from the Democrats? So I think that if you look carefully at the data, what you, what you find is that pre-2008, the kind of attrition of white working class support for the Democratic Party was primarily concentrated in the South. Um, this was kind of um, uh, made kind of, this observation was, was famously made by Larry Bartels in this, uh, in this paper he wrote called What's the Matter with What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, you know, 
older listeners might remember that in the mid 2000s, there was this book that came out called What's the Matter with Kansas that made the argument that white working class voters were leaving the Democratic Party because uh, Republicans had duped them into voting Republican based on um, abortion and gay marriage and social issues and so forth. But then when Republicans were in power, they only focused on tax cuts for the rich and so forth. And Bartels in the mid 2000s, he kind of debunked that argument. And he showed that if you look at white working class voters in the Northern states, um, there hasn't been that much attrition. So it's mostly a product of the fact that white people in the South in general were leaving the Republican or the, leaving the Democratic Party throughout the 80s and 90s. However, there's no doubt that since 2008, there has been massive attrition among white working class voters in the North in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, these kind of, um, you know, Rust Belt, for lack of a way, better way to put it, states. And so I think that the, the trend among white working class voters was quite different in the late 20th century and the first years of the 21st century from what it's been since 2008. Now, uh, that raises the issue of the, the idea of racial resentment here, because after Trump's 2016 win, there was a lot of analysis by political scientists who found that uh, a lot of Trump voters, particularly those voters that shifted from Obama to Trump in 2016, uh, there's that correlated highly with measures of what political scientists call racial resentment. Uh, so, but, but it's interesting in, in, in both of these articles that we read about the shifts, there's really not much made of that. Rather, the emphasis in the articles is on the kinds of appeals the Democrats were making. Uh, as not being attractive to these voters. Uh, what, what's the relationship there? Is, is there anything to this racial resentment thesis uh, or is the problem how the Democrats are talking to uh, working class voters? Uh, Matt, do you? I actually think that both of those are correct, frankly. And I think that, and I think they're actually related to each other. And so there clearly is a lot to the racial resentment thesis. I think that, you know, um, that there's been perhaps we should uh, well, maybe we should should explain racial resentment uh, when political scientists use that measure. What what are they really talking about? Uh, we're not talking about necessarily racism here, are we? Or not in the way that that we use, usually use the term racism, right? In everyday discourse, it's it's a more we might call it a more subtle form of 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 racial animus uh, or uh, you know sort of. Um, a belief that that people of color are gaming the system, are getting something that they're not entitled to, um, are not uh, are, are sort of not holding up, quote unquote, their end of the bargain. It's often associated with opposition to social welfare programs. Um, and it, you know, it, it it's not necessarily an explicit or kind of direct form of racism. It's a, it's a more subtle and indirect form. Um, that kind of connects racial minorities to um, uh, sort of negative stereotypes and negative ideas, especially sort of dependency on government programs and, uh, and kind of social disorder as well, crime, for example. Yeah, and methodologically, this is me measured by scales with where respondents are asked to respond to certain questions that, that puts them into this category, right? Yes, yeah, a battery, a battery of questions that are a bit more subtle, but that kind of, kind of um, uh, you know, kind of tap people's beliefs about these connections that I just talked about. Okay, so I interrupted you there. Uh, with that clarification, then, uh, you said there's both of these, uh, that, that, that white working classes express alienated from the Democrats, both because of racial resentment, but also because of what they're hearing from the Democrats. Yeah, I, I would say, and this goes way, way back, many, many decades, right, on both fronts. I mean, I think that, you know, the, you can go way back to the 60s, right, in the civil rights movement and the kind of turning point in the, the Southern strategy, quote unquote. And as Adam said, you know, generally speaking, a lot of those shifts were occurring only in the South for a long time. But I think in more recent years, there's been, you might even call a nationalization of the Southern strategy. Um, in other words, um, that I, I think that Republicans have largely been pretty successful in, you know, making an argument or an appeal that, um, you know, sort of links racial resentment 
to you know opposition to the Democrats and opposition to and, and support for Republicans and outside the South, right? And, and particularly in rural areas and small towns in the industrial Midwest. And so here's where I think the, the Democrats kind of fit in, which is that over that same period, more or less, and even accelerating more in the 90s, we'll say, the, the, the establishment sort of neoliberal Democrats have in many ways turned away from working class appeals and have focused both their electoral strategy and I hope we get a chance to talk a bit about public policy today too, their policy agenda, frankly, on um, away from policies that you know, have a, a kind of broader class-based appeal. Uh, and I think that's only encouraged or created more space for the kind of more racial resentment arguments to, to kind of work their way in and, and have effects on attitudes and especially voting patterns. Yeah, okay, yeah, make sure we get around to the policy issues. I, I do want to, in, in a minute, talk a little bit about the Biden policy agenda and, and, and how that might have an impact. But, but before we do that, I want to hear uh, Adam's thoughts about uh, what Matt just had to say. Yeah, so I, I would say a couple of thing, things, and I think Matt is, is definitely on to something, but, but specifically with regards to racial resentment, I think it's important to point out that there's a debate in political science about whether or not this kind of racial resentment um, metric that we've been talking about actually taps into race. Uh, you know, some scholars have pointed out that it could just be tapping into general um, beliefs in egalitarianism and equal opportunity and so forth. There was a paper published a few years ago that um, used the racial resentment battery but substituted uh, some generic uh, European ethnic group for black in the questions and the results were about the same, uh, which suggests that you know what, what is going on amongst people who have high scores and so-called racial resentment might not actually have anything to do with race or might have little to do with race. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And another small piece of evidence that this is actually not so much about race, um, you know, is something I alluded to earlier. A lot of these um, voters in the industrial Midwest, these white working class voters in the industrial Midwest that have been leaving the Democratic Party voted for Obama in 2008. Right. And so this is an important thing to keep in mind. If these voters are, you know, so uh, objectively racist, um, how did so many of them vote for a black presidential candidate? Obama did incredibly well in in the rural counties of Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota and so forth. And then kind of from a practical perspective, uh, I would say that for the Democrats, kind of talking about, uh, you know, wh uh, white working class attrition as a result of racial resentment uh, is probably not a very good move. I mean, just to, you know, to call the voters that you're trying to entice back into your camp racists, uh, I don't think that's a good strategy. So, you know, for all of these reasons, I am skeptical of the racial resentment analysis as both uh, a method of analysis and as a, I guess, a political narrative. Right. I, and I uh, appreciate your caution about the, the measure itself and, and some questions about, about what it actually is, is measuring. Um, on the other hand, it, it seems to me something's going on there. I, I mean, I, I think one can make the argument that uh, a lot of voters who, uh, let's for a moment accept that there might be racial resentment among those voters. They might've voted for Obama, but keep in mind that in 2008, Obama very much downplayed his race and tried to portray himself as a different sort of black person, right? Uh, this highly educated uh, black person who was, uh, had a white mother, that biography was very much a part of the campaign. Uh, he, 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 he portrayed himself as, he, he consciously was trying to avoid uh, alienated voters who might be put off because of his race, uh, particularly white voters. Yet, the demonization of Obama as that alien black person from Kenya really got going after he became president. Okay, that's when the right-wing media began to ramp up. There had been birther stuff before, but the whole birther thing really ramped up after 2008. Um, the the, 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 the right-wing media emphasized that, you know, suddenly 
uh, Obama became black uh, more than he had been during the election campaign of 2008. So I think we need to keep, keep that in mind as well as to why these voters might have voted for Obama, but then, uh, you know, abandoned him. Uh, and, and, the, and the abandonment was pretty quick. By 2010, uh, the Tea Party came along and of course he was, uh, was a smaller electorate, but, but already uh, you see this, this, this shift away from o Obama. Okay, so I just wanted to, you know, counter your caution with a, with a counter caution about how we interpret this, you know, very complicated uh, reality. Matt, do you want to respond there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I just I, I wanted to say first of all, I, I agree completely with what Bill just said, and I would add on to that just that we need to keep in mind the more general point that you know something like racial resentment is not just a it's not just a factor that is there, right? In other words, it it, it might have different uh, levels of effect in different contexts. It gets activated, it gets de-emphasized. People vote for all kinds of different reasons in different contexts. You know, many people who might score high in racial resentment, many whites in those areas, given the economic context and given what Bill said, the, the, the downplaying of race by the Obama campaign, right, and given the other choice on the ballot, right, might have voted for him, right? But that doesn't mean that racial resentment isn't real and that it isn't, uh, doesn't create a fertile ground, right, for the sorts of appeals that the Republicans have been making. Um, so I think we need to be nuanced about that. And we also need to think about elections as not necessarily always driven by policy, right? Which is something that you know, I'd like want to talk about too. Okay. Well, actually, why not, maybe we should talk a bit about the policy issue, uh, Matt. Uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Prelude that, just to sum up our conversation here. I think what we've what we conclude conclude is it's complicated. Uh, this is really uh, you know very subtle and and things are going on here uh, in this electorate. And, and it's, it's, it is gonna be, it is hard to understand exactly why uh, voters are moving the way they are, okay. But let's look at the policy uh, part of it. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the Obama agenda, the Biden agenda as well. Matt, you wanna make your case yeah, I can start off by just making a point that doesn't really come up very much in either of these articles, which is that, you know, the evidence for broad public support for basic progressive economic and social welfare policy is really, really extensive. And it's longstanding. It's not a new thing. Um, it's sky high among Democrats and those who identify as independents. And, you know, there even is some evidence that among lower income Republicans, support for a lot of these basic policy directions is really quite substantial. So things like raising taxes on the rich and on corporations um, and, and you know, raising the minimum wage, for example, even more recently, you know, things like Medicare for all, or at least a public option in healthcare. And so, and, and there's also evidence that some of these things are getting more popular, right? And so to me, it's a lot of this is about the ability or inability to connect policy priorities to political parties, right, into, into voting, right? And so in some ways, the task for Democrats has been fairly clear to me, which is to do that better than they've been able to do in a more broad-based way. Um, as far as Biden goes, I mean, you know, I think we see with- Good, uh, could, I, could I jump in here, Matt, before we get into Biden? Uh, one thing thought that occurs to me is that uh, part of the uh, unhappiness with the Democratic Party, uh, in spite of the association of the party with some of these issues, is that the Democratic Party has been unable, at least in the Obama years, was, were un, was unable to deliver uh, many of these popular progressive policies because of effective obstruction by the Republicans. So the Republican Party has uh, perhaps, con the Republican Party strategy has in fact contributed uh, to uh, th th this alienation of lower income working class voters uh, with the Democratic Party by essentially portraying the party as a party that, that can't really deliver the things that people want. I would agree with that completely. And I think we're probably gonna see more of that um, as we go forward. And, you know, policy scholars have this concept of policy feedback, this idea that policies can 
you know, reshape the political terrain once they're enacted. And I think Republicans understand that at least intuitively, Republican elites, which is by by sort of, you know, blocking, obstructing, mitigating these policies, they're reducing the potential that there could be positive feedback effects for the Democrats. Yeah, and demonizing, demonizing, you think about Obamacare. Yes. Yeah, right. and demonizing them in, in often really racialized ways. Um, I would just say as well that I think that I do think that some of the, like in the, in the Guastella piece, for example, he overstates the idea that, that, um, that, you know, basically we're getting more of the same in the Biden administration that we've had in the kind of neoliberal era. Um, I, I think that, you know, even if you look at the, the, the victory speech that he excerpts there, the different policy priorities, there are, there's more than a nod to the concerns of working class people about jobs, about any economic inequality, and of course about healthcare. And I think that the Biden and Biden and the Biden factions being pushed, frankly, by the sort of Sanders coalition, by the quote unquote squad, which I think he I, I think comes out negatively um, in this article. I, I think they I think he misunderstands and mischaracterizes, frankly, what the squad is doing um, in terms of their policy appeals and, and how much of a working class appeal they actually have. Right. Adam, wanna Way in here. So I, I definitely agree with some of Matt said, but I, I want to provide a somewhat different perspective. So what Matt is what Matt said regarding voters' views on uh, public policies is is true. Uh, as a general matter, um, a wide swath of American voters tend to prefer the Democrats or progressives' economic policies to those offered by Republicans. But it is important to bear in mind. Uh, that voters tend to give affirmative responses to public policy proposals and surveys. When they're presented with trade-offs, it's a little more nuanced, right? I mean, voters might say they, they support Medicare for all, but when it's pointed out to them that Medicare for all would require giving up their private health insurance, they're far less likely to support it. So that's, that's one point I want to make. I don't think the case that, you know, um, American voters are over, like, have a progressive ideology, a fundamentally progressive ideology on economic policy is, is quite right. Um, the other thing that I would say is that, uh, you know, if it were true that a focus on just bread and butter issues, on pocketbook issues, and on delivering in regards to pocketbook issues, uh, would result in major uh, shifts in partisanship and in approval of the Democratic Party and so forth, um, then we should be seeing um, major increases in support for President Biden and the Democrats among white working class voters right now, right? Because President Obama, or excuse me, President Biden and the Democrats have been very successful thus far. You know, the, the, uh, the, American Rescue Plan um, was, you know, a, a mass was essentially tantamount to a massive infusion of dollars into regular people's pockets. Uh, and yet, if you look at the sur the surveys right now, what the surveys show is that most white voters without a college degree disapprove of the job that President Biden is doing. So I don't think that a a, a focus, like a, a relentless focus on public policy, as much as I think that's that's a good thing to do, I don't think it's going to change a lot of people's minds. And and the reason for that, the, the reasons for that are complicated. Um, and I can certainly get into my views on, on, on why they're complicated. Um, but I think that that changing the minds of white working class voters is is a much more difficult, more long-term project that's going to involve a lot more than just you know, a relentless focus on the economic interests of working class people. Yeah, Matt, I noticed on Zoom there a slight shaking of your head as Adam was speaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree and I disagree with what Adam said. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, it's not only about, right, the Democrats having this relentless class-based focus. I would say that's a necessary condition for the kind of longer term shift that we're talking about, but not a sufficient condition. The reality is that, and this is something that we haven't talked about yet, is that it's one thing to make the claim and make the appeal. It's another thing for the appeal to reach people and to reach people in a way that is um, you know, likely to spur them to vote in a different way, okay? And so I think the, the kind of media and information system needs to be brought in here and frankly doesn't get nearly enough 
um, uh, enough focus. Uh, and frankly, even among the left, it doesn't. And I think there's a big problem that has to be dealt with having to do with, you know, the fragmentation of information the, and, and the ways in which, um, you know, negative appeals from the Republican side and from the right, um, including racialized appeals, uh, can uh, have, you know, can, can reach people, especially white working class people, um, without being effectively countered, right, by these, you know, more economic class-based appeals that we're talking about. And that's a difficult, you know, a set of issues to solve or to respond to. But I don't think that means that the problem is the Democrats, you know, need to, are, are, you know, are, are, you know, focusing too much on class or, you know, putting forth too progressive an economic policy agenda. I think that, that that's, you know, given the options presented, I mean, that's the, not only the best option for the country, frankly, it's the best strategic option for the Democratic Party, I think. Well, well, maybe we should talk about that messaging. I mean, one of the more provocative things in the in the Guastella article was his discussion of mistakes by the progressives, uh, the 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 wokeness that uh, uh, slogans like "defund the police," which he says alienates white working class voters that might otherwise respond to a policy agenda that Biden seems to be putting forth. I, I, I frankly uh, agree with you, Matt, that uh, the, the policy agenda that Biden is talking about seems to be one that ought to appeal to uh, the working class. Um, and, it, and, he, and, and, I, and Biden has been emphasizing those aspects of it, right? That's what he's talking about. Uh, even when he talks about environment, it's always these environmental policies are going to create jobs. Um, but you're saying that message isn't getting through. And, and could it be, as Gustella say, says, because progressives are drowning that message out with, with, uh, with wokeness? That's pretty provocative, it seems to me. What, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, so I, I would agree with that. And, and, and let me go back to kind of where Matt left off. I think that the, that the appeals component of this is crucial. Like Matt is exactly right. Um, policies without, you know, direct appeals, um, you know, will not cut it for Democrats. But I would, I guess I would, I think about this somewhat differently. And here I go back to the CARP article. Um, because CARP is making this claim that, you know, the class dealignment is a disaster for left-wing politics. And I, I, I agree with that. But then he goes on to say that the problem is um, that the Democratic Party has uh, become a party of identity politics, and it needs to be a party of class politics instead of identity politics. And my issue with that is that you know, as we've talked about a lot, um, both in this podcast and in individual conversations, in a mass democracy like the U.S., all politics is identity politics. You know, voters are not policy wonks. When they go to the polls, they don't vote based on policy. They vote based on their social identity. This is a longstanding finding in political science. So, the re so if the Democrats or the left is really serious about turning the Democratic Party into a genuine working class party, then they have to focus on creating or promoting a working class a cross-racial, transracial, working-class identity among working-class Americans, and that's a massive project, right? It's a it's a discursive project. It has to do with communication and with um, media and everything else. And I guess my view is that project is going to fail. I don't think that project can be successful, and the reason for these the reasons for that are complicated. Um, Yes, there's the racial issues which, which make it complicated, but I also think it has to do with the fact that the kind of well-educated professional class, right, which has tremendous economic and cultural power in this country has become such a fundamental part of the Democratic Party. And I think that, that the, the influence of that component of the Democratic Party, particularly in regards to social and cultural issues, makes it very difficult to uh, create a kind of a, a working class identity that, that spans race, region, religion, everything else. Uh, I would, I, you know, I, I agree that that's gonna be difficult. I don't think that, I don't think it's gonna, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's gonna fail. Um, I think that 
I do think that the, the criticism of sort of woke discourse and woke ideology, there is something there, right? I, I think that, you know, that that's important. And, and I think that that is alienating, right, to, you know, uh, large segments of voters that the Democrats otherwise might want to appeal to. However, I, I think that the idea that people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley are focusing too much on that and not enough on their class-based appeal because they come from these, you know, high, more highly educated blue districts or that they represent these districts is way overplayed. In other words, you know, if you actually look at their rhetoric and what they say, they're frequently making broad class-based appeals, you know, strongly supporting, you know, high minimum wages, um, other kinds of progressive policies, and, and supporting them not in the language of identity politics, but in the language of class politics. And I think it's a misimpression that that sort of wing of the Democratic Party has been captured by this overly identity politics woke crowd, quote unquote. And I think that's frankly where the hope is, you know, in terms of, you know, working within the Democratic Party to push it to the left on class. Uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, as far as the professional class is concerned, I mean, I think that, you know, doing the strategy I'm suggesting is going to cost the Democrats over the long term some voters. I think there's no there's no costless strategically way to go about this. But, you know, uh, arguably those voters would be more than made up for by this broader multiracial working class and it, working class and also middle class, frankly, um, coalition that could be forged through the strategy that I'm talking about. Yeah, but uh, that poses in a really big dilemma for the Democrats, because if their recent victories are so dependent upon the professional suburban voters, and they want to enact a policy agenda that actually would appeal to the working class, they need to have power. And how do they thread the needle? Uh, in, in the near term, and I'm thinking here of the 2022 elections, 2024 perhaps, of winning elections uh, uh, in, in a situation where what the steps they might, might take to build this broad racial working class, ra racially diverse working class coalition might alienate some of their, what have been their most faithful voters in recent years. Uh, this looks like a really, really, really big problem. Um, yeah, it's an incredible challenge, and I, I, I don't know how Democrats are going to manage it. So let me make a few points. First of all, these these pro suburban professional voters that we've been talking about that 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 started to vote Democratic in 2016 and then 2018 and 2020 as well. I think it's pretty clear that these voters are not permanent Democrats, right? They have not made the transition to durable democratic partisanship. And there's a couple of ways we know that. First of all, um, in a lot of the country's largest kind of upper income suburban counties, uh, split ticket voting was quite high last year. Um, you know, split ticket voting in general was low, but in these suburban upscale counties, it was high. Places like Orange County, California, which Biden won, but which several Republican congressional candidates picked up as well. Uh, so that's one reason we know it. You know, these voters, many of them are clearly will, were clearly interested in taking Trump out, which is why they voted for Biden, but down ballot, they voted Republican in some cases. Um, um, and we also know it, uh, because when Democrats nominated kind of far left candidates in kind of these kind of upscale suburban congressional districts, uh, oftentimes those candidates lost, even as Biden carried those districts. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of reasons to think that, you know, these voters started voting Democratic in the last few years at the presidential level, largely because they really didn't like Trump. But now that Trump is gone, um, those voters could easily shift back into the Republican column if the Democrats overreach. So that's that's one point. Um, and then the other thing is going back to, you know, creating this kind of working class coalition, as I said earlier, um, you know, I view I think this is a discursive project. You know, politicians need to, you know, Democratic politicians need to start talking about the Democratic Party as being the party of the working class, irrespective of race. 
I really don't see much of that going on at all right now, including uh, from President Biden. I mean, I, I will give, I think Bernie Sanders, you know, in his two presidential runs did try to do that, um, but I don't think he was successful. We can get we can get into why. I don't want to take up too much time. And, um, and at this point, it's very hard for me to envision a democratic politician kind of, you know, successfully making this kind of pitch in a general election. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I don't think that this is not, definitely not how Biden won last year. He won largely because he wasn't Trump. Um, and so, yeah, these are huge obstacles and I, I have a very hard time seeing Democrats overcome them. Uh, actually, um, I think in Guastella in his conclusion kind of agrees with the points you were just making in his argument that the Democratic Party needs to recruit more working class politicians. That is, they need to elect people who are genuinely from the working class. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, AOC could fit there. I mean, she was a working class bartender before she got into politics, although she also is highly educated and, and, and the like. But, 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 but Democratic politicians coming out of the labor movement, for example, um, uh, what do you think about that strategy? Is there any, uh, given the, the makeup now of members of Congress, which is very high income, very elite, um, there was a time, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, when there was a substantial number of working class members of Congress. Uh, that was before the era of primaries. Uh, that's back when party machines picked candidates. And they often picked working class candidates. Um, how is, is is this a pipe dream of Guastella that that you could in fact expand the working class base of the party elite itself? I don't think it's a pipe dream at all. And I found that the most persuasive part, frankly, of his article. And and I do think it's a longer term project. I think it's insufficient. It's also necessary, but insufficient. To, to, you know, in other, in other words, kind of increase descriptive representation on a class basis. And it, it, this is a long history. I mean, you're right, Bill, that it was less class biased, the makeup of, of, you know, frankly, Congress, you know, decades ago. But, you know, really, there's been very little movement in kind of working class representation in Congress over, you know, 100 years almost. And there are a lot of structural barriers to that. I do think there's hope in the union movement, though, especially I think that we're at an inflection point with the pandemic and with the economy, that there are reasons to think that over the long term, you know, um, a, a reinvigorated union movement that becomes active in electoral politics and candidate training and recruitment like this can play a big part right in the shift that we're talking about. I'm not that hopeful in the short term, though, about, say, the next, you know, two years right on that on that score well let's talk some more about that that short term um it seems that the next two years are crucial in that uh they could um really devastate um the ability of the democratic party to thread this needle um, if we would envision for example Democrats doing very poorly in 2022, and the Republicans regaining Congress, con complete control of Congress. Uh, any hope for a working class policy agenda is, is gone. Um, and actually, before we talk about that, I wanna go back to something else in terms of this, uh, the wokeness business. And uh, I, Matt, I, I agree with you completely that the article exaggerates uh, the extent to which the progressives in the Democratic Party are uh, submerging the, the working class appeal with that wokeness. But I think what is going on there, and that might relate to the point you were making, Adam, about, uh, about, uh, about working class voters uh, not supporting, at least in the early months here, uh, uh, Biden uh, is in fact the Republican uh, rhetoric, uh, which focuses. I mean, uh, all the for the last you know two months, 
uh, all the Republicans have been talking about is cancel culture, right? Uh, which is sort of a direct attack on this wokeness and stuff. And, and that they're succeeding in portraying the Democratic Party in precisely the way that's going to prevent the Democratic Party from reaching out uh, to the working class. Um, so I guess one, that's one question, is what's happening here the success of the of Republicans in their messaging? Um, and what do you think about uh, the possibility of, I guess, total disaster in the next couple of elections for the Democrats? So I would say that clearly uh, Republican attacks on quote unquote cancel culture are, are playing a role. But I think there's another issue lurking in the background here, which is an actual issue uh, that, that Biden and the Democrats are going to have to attend to very shortly. Um, and which absolutely could, you know, spell major problems for their policy agenda and for their goals of creating a working class coalition, if that's actually what they want. And that's immigration. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that um, the, the drop in Biden approval in the past few weeks has to do with what's going on in the border. Um, the large number of uh, migrant children from Central America and the ma major increase in, in uh other in, in workers from Mexico who wanna come into the country without the authorization of the US government. This is a, an issue which is very, very difficult for the Democrats to solve because once again, the, for lack of a better way to put it, the well-educated professional class, the woke crowd, however you wanna, you refer to this kind of amorphous group of people, um, they are advancing uh, positions on immigration that are far to the left of where, uh, you know, the average American is certainly where the average, you know, working class American, including um, the average working class Latino and African American uh, American are. You know, it's important to bear in mind that that working class communities are the one are the communities that feel the effects of of major increases in immigration, particularly unauthorized immigration. They feel uh, these effects um, much more than upscale suburban communities do, right? The you know, unauthorized immigrants tend to set, settle in places where working class Americans live. Uh, and so, you know, and, and so to the extent that the Democrats um, advance, you know, kind of a, for lack of a better way to put it, an open borders, that, that's probably not fair. An, an approach to immigration that, that suggests that they don't, that, that they don't, they're not properly considering that the genuine concerns of working class Americans regarding unauthorized immigration, this could absolutely put them in peril in 2022 and beyond. I would agree that's a big problem and it's not an easily solved problem. I also think that, however, that we need to talk about the Republicans just for a minute here because the Republicans frankly are not in great shape either uh, in terms of, I mean, I think that, you know, that, the structure of American elections and, and, and the structure of our institutions, frankly, favor Republicans right now um, for reasons that we could, you know, if we had time, we could get into. So, you know, large, big Democratic, small D obstructions. But nevertheless, the Republicans are really just holding on. And I don't see any long, very lo much long term potential for them either. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. They have their own problems that are arguably bigger ones, right? Uh, and this this brings up, you know, the fight over voting rights. And uh, since I have you both of you here, I, I'd be kind of curious about your take on on, on this fight. I mean, the, one of the narratives is that the Republicans uh, have adopted a strategy of staying in power by restricting voting. Okay, that and that's what's behind all these laws that are being passed in the states to make voting more complicated. Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of that as a strategy for the Republicans because I'm not so sure that even, even some of the onerous measures that they're putting in, and, uh, can, can, they, they can nevertheless be overcome by a lot of mobilization. Uh, and I'm wondering, whether or not that's gonna work for the Republicans. And the other thing is that since we know that, uh, since we know that, that uh, 
uh, lower income, non-educated uh, white voters also might be deterred by some of these restrictions. The Republicans are perhaps even hurting part of their own voter base by these restrictions. And uh, so uh, the Republicans have seem to be banking a lot on this. Um, is, is this really a foolish strategy? I think it is uh, for a number of reasons. First, I mean, this is a complicated set of issues. The, the first point to make, I think, is that we, we want more people to vote. You know, a healthy democracy is, is one in which turnout is high. And so the fact that the Republicans across, in states across the country are trying to pass policies to make it harder for people to vote, um, it seems wrong and, and, it, and it has a very bad look. And so I, I don't really know why they're doing it, especially since, and this gets to the second point I want to make, the vast bulk of the political science research suggests that, that most of these changes uh, are not gonna make a big difference. Uh, you know, like the people who take advantage of, um, you know, expanded early voting, um, mail, expanded mail-in voting and so on and so forth, tend to be, um, you know, high interest uh, engaged voters who would vote anyway. And, you know, if you look across the country, last year voting expanded dramatically, both in states that made it easier to vote last year in response to that pandemic and states that didn't. More broadly speaking, if you look historically, right, there's, there's a, a great book that came out last year called The Turnout Myth um, by one of my former professors at the University of Texas. And they show pretty darn conclusively that there is pretty much no relationship between turnout rates and partisan outcomes in American elections. There never has been. This idea that high turnout benefits the Democrats, it's a myth. It, it's always been a myth and it continues to be a myth. Um, one can easily foresee a situation in which a high turnout election leads to the Republican being elected president or Republicans taking control of Congress and so forth. So, you know, from, a, from, from that perspective, I don't, you know, my view is that these voting restrictions are not gonna make a big difference, but at the same time that kind of, the, the media hyperventilating about them, you know, is, you know, that's, that's kind of an exaggerated reaction, except in the sense that it sends a message, right? Um, and, and I think the message that these, uh, that these laws are sending or that these, these efforts are sending is a really bad one. Okay. Matt, I'd like your thoughts on that quickly, but uh, we need to wind up here. And I, I want to end on a, a maybe a hopeful note. You, you talked about initially hope, Matt, for the Democrats. Uh, maybe you could expand a little bit on where you see that hope for the Democrats and, and maybe build off what Adam just said about the, the voting restriction notion. I'll just say, you know, that, that turnout is important. I'm, and it's not because turnout, high turnout benefits on average one party or the other. It's because it's not it's not just about that. It's about who turns out and it's about the strategies and the mobilization strategies of, you know, directed toward different groups. And to me, that's where a lot of the hope comes from for the Democrats is, you know, there's a lot of talk in these articles about, you know, declining or flattening African-American turnout in urban areas, for example, which is a big problem, uh, a growing problem for Democrats. And so efforts need to be made there. Um, and and also uh, and I do think, you know, you know, a kind of multiracial class based appeal. Right. Is what is needs to be the kind of the kind of antidote there. Right. In terms of, you know, mobilizing people um, and, and getting, you know, getting them interested in, in voting. And again, this is a longer term thing. But I mean, I do also think that generationally there is a shift. Um, there is a shift in policy preferences that we see. Um, and not just on quote unquote cultural issues, but on economic issues that we're seeing. And it's not just kids in college, it's younger people who are not in college too, who are expressing in many ways more progressive economic preferences. And so there's, there's, there's ground, there are grounds there, right, to build on. Um, but, you know, I think the short term is going to be very, very difficult. Okay. Uh, well, Matt, Professor Guardino, Professor Myers, thanks so much. We covered a lot of ground here. Uh, we could go on for another hour, I'm sure, but uh, we need to uh, uh, wind things up. 
Um, so thanks very much. Uh, and thanks again to uh, our producer, uh, Chris Judge of the Providence College Office of uh, Marketing and Communications uh, for his help. And thanks especially to our listeners. Uh, please listen and tell friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.